you very much. And now, uh, as we look to the Lord's Word, I invite you to turn to, in your Bibles, in your device, but it's so helpful uh, if our eyes are looking at the text as we're hearing God's Word. Our text this Lord's Day is John chapter 9, verses 8 through 23. You remember uh, last week we had the healing of the man born blind. Uh, the, the narrative continues in John chapter 9, verses 8 through 23. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is this not he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. <clears throat> Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore, they said to him, How are your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him, who formerly was blind, to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Last week we saw the man was healed. The Lord had, uh, was apparently leaving the temple after his encounter that, uh, where they were ready to pick up stones. It seems like, we're not told directly, but it seems like the narrative just continues. And so as he's leaving the temple, here is this man born blind. Now again, the Lord could heal in so many ways. He could speak the word. He could have touched him. The man could have touched Jesus' garment. Uh, the Lord could have said nothing. Uh, the Lord is not limited by distance. He, he heals people that aren't even there. But the Lord did something un very unusual. He spit on the ground, mixed it into a clay, put it on his eyes, and said, Now go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And what's so wonderful as you read that text, the Lord said it, and he did it, just as he was told. And so he went and he washed. And when he washed, his, his eyes were restored. 
Now, if you were writing a book that kind of uh, narrated this, I, would, I might be inclined to take the next 20 chapters, you know, marveling at his marvel. Can you imagine those first visions? Uh, the first time he saw what, saw what a person looked like. The first time he saw color. He, the first time he, the, this wonderful water that he had touched, there's the beautiful pool of Siloam and the people around him. How his eyes must have been filled as he saw trees and, and saw the creatures that made those bird songs that he has enjoyed all over the years. How every step must have thrilled him. And then we're told what happened in verse 9, chapter 9, verse 7. He's, uh, Jesus said, go wash in the pool of Siloam which is translated sent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. So he, he returned back to where he had been. Now, in our text, verses 8 and 9, therefore the neighbors said, therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, is this not he who sat and begged? And some said, this is he. Others said, he's like him. And he said, I am he. If you look at the maps of the area, the pictures of the area, the temple is up on, you know, it's like the high point in Jerusalem of the day. And um, you go down this hill, and it's a pretty noticeable hill you went down to go down to where the pool of, pool of Siloam was. And I imagine, even though he was an experienced blind walker, he, it may have taken him some time to get down there carefully. But then what a walk it must have been, seeing every sight, put in sights with sounds, and what a sight when, when first he saw the temple. That was one of the great beauties of the ancient world. And how it must have marveled him to look up and see that beautiful stone and the, and the beautiful uh, gold and, and so many other things that, that must have struck him. I, I mention that because when he came back, if you've ever seen someone or, uh, you know, with, that are blind, often their, their eyes, their face will tell you they're blind. You can just tell maybe where their eyes don't track sometimes the eyes look kind of just passive and blank because they're not looking at anything and especially born blind he has no idea what it means to look at someone suddenly when he came back he had a different appearance his face was vibrant those eyes weren't just moving. Perhaps maybe sometimes before they were just moved around aimlessly. Now they see he's looking at things. He's looking at us. He had never before looked them in the eye. And for a beggar, that would be a good strategy. There's something very effective. Look you in the eye. Wouldn't you like to contribute? But now he's looking them in the eyes. He's looking at, they could tell this man sees. And frankly, I think his whole face lit up by the miracle, lit up by the experience he looked so totally different that you, they were wondering, is this the same man? They were debating. And we're not, again, I'm, I marvel. Some of the characters in the Bible we know by name, Nicodemus. This poor fellow, we don't know his name. I say poor fellow, he's saved and seeing, so that's pretty good, but we don't know his name. I don't know, in heaven will he wear a little name tag, blind man? Um, <laughs> Oh, uh, mud eyes, whatever they call it. But, but, but uh, so they keep talking about him as, you know, in those kind of ways. And there was a debate, is this even he? Some said yes, some said no. Have you ever experienced that where maybe you see someone and they've changed so dramatically? It's like, you, I get a, you get a little shaken. Is this, is this the same person? 
um, early in the life of the church, I made the mistake of calling someone out in the, on one of the ladies in the church and said, that, you know, please introduce your guest. And it wasn't a guest, it's one of her regular members, but she'd so tra- dramatically changed her hairstyle. I didn't, between my poor vision and her hairstyle, I didn't know who it was. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> but, but all that to say, so he, he was so dramatic that those who knew him well were even debating, is this the same person? How can this be? And his response is simply, I'm, I'm he. <laughs> I'm the guy. Yep, it's me. And so they never, they were marveling at just his joy at, at, his, his, at his vision and, and were astounded. Therefore, verse 10 and 11, they said to him, how were your eyes opened? And he answered and said to them, and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. Now it's interesting to me that these people knew him. They were around him. And yet they're saying, what happened? I, I'm wondering if it suggests to me that the whole interaction with Jesus was very private. You know, you see these people today that claim they're going to do miracles. And they do it. They put on a big show. Jesus did it so quietly, no one even noticed. He said, well, it was really interesting. This man made this mud, put it on my eyes. And so here we see their reaction of ignorance. How, did, how were your eyes opened? And he gives a simple and accurate response. And I like this man. Uh, sometimes I'm frustrated. Some people, you know, you, the old thing, you ask them what time it is, and they tell you how to make a watch. This man, I mean, he's, he's straight to the point. And, and honest, you know, he doesn't try and work around it either. A man called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. I went and washed, and I received my sight. There it is. One of those incredible miracles, so simply described. No extraneous details. You know, he doesn't launch off into all his, he's experiencing how wonderful it is. He doesn't tell us, you know, you know, oh, it was something. I poured up this water. Frankly, that dirt was kind of a little irritating my eyes. None of that. Just, just the basics. Now, if you're noticing along, he says, a man called Jesus. How did he know that? How did he know his name was Jesus? We're not told. I think he's going through a gate into the temple. Or he's there sitting by the gate at the temple. And so maybe, maybe as people, as Jesus came and went at the feast... You know, you know, when you're blind, you're, you, know, you hear better. Maybe they heard, surely they had heard the name Jesus. And, and maybe he could kind of, after a while, he recognized the Jesus crowd was going by. Him and his disciples. Maybe even started recognizing voices. And heard them calling, you know, speaking to Jesus and him responding. And so maybe he was able to figure out uh, in those ways uh, who it was. Maybe, you know, as the disciples spoke, even at that encounter, they, they said, Jesus, did you, what about this, what about that? But he knew somehow, apparent, but Jesus didn't say, I'm Jesus, let me do this. He picked it up from the context. And he, and, and, and he knew who it was. Notice how he describes him. A man called Jesus. That's accurate. But there's so much he could have said. He doesn't say, the Lord Jesus he doesn't say the kinds of things. He doesn't say a teacher, a prophet. He doesn't even call him rabbi, which even his disciples would call him. He doesn't say, well, Rabbi Jesus did. Just a man called Jesus. 
Well, if someone told me that, then maybe I saw them crippled. I saw them blind, and then they come back the next day, and their, 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 their sight is perfect. What happened? Oh, it's real simple. Mud, eyes, wash, I can see. Verse 12, they said to him, well, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Again, at least, isn't it great how short these conversations are? <laughs> now, this, but in other words, Jesus, this man put mud in your eyes, told you to wash, restored your sight. Where is he? I mean, we, we want to talk to him. We want to see him. This is amazing. And he says, simply answers, I don't know. He might have come back expecting to find him there. And he came back to where he had been, but Jesus had already moved on. And so his simple request, his answer is, I don't know. So they can't go to him and say, Jesus, what did you do? How did that work? I, I imagine that's probably what they wanted to, or, or of course some of them may have said, I've got a child. My wife is, you know, they could use, they could use this kind of help. But I think too, they just would want to say to Jesus, what's going on? How could you do this? But he's not there. So they do the next reasonable thing. Verse 13, they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Poor guy, don't, again, he's, now he's the former blind man. And later on, if you follow along carefully in the wording of the text, they'll just call him the blind man. So they brought the formerly blind. Again, we, maybe if we were told his name, we would forget the condition here. He had been blind. Now he can see. And they brought him to the Pharisees. Why? Well, Jesus wasn't there to explain it. None of his disciples, these guys are in the dark. What is going on here? And so they go to, obviously this is a miracle thing. In the language of today, we say a God thing. Obviously God has done something. So, you know, the most natural thing is you go to your spiritual advisors. You go to the Pharisees. They were the teachers and the rabbis that explained God, that explained the Bible, that, that taught them about spiritual things. It's like someone maybe has some kind of a, a spiritual issue, uh, a, a question, and they go to the pastor and say, help me understand. So they sought out the Pharisees. You'll notice it says they went to the Pharisees. They didn't, it doesn't say they went to the Sanhedrin. You know, that's the, the, the court of the Jewish leaders that, that ruled. You know, they're, they're at the temple. Um, this, wasn't, this wasn't like a big case you bring to the Supreme Court. This was just an, a question for teaching. But they said they went to the Pharisees, not the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I'll remind you, the Pharisees were the ones who were in the synagogue. They were the ones who taught, who, were, who, who, who led and controlled and dominated in the synagogues. And they believed in miracles, they believed in angels, they believed in an eternal soul, and they believed that the, the traditions of the rabbis were of same authority as the Bible. That's the Pharisees. The Sadducees, they had their primary influence in the, in the temple. And they were what I would call deists of the time. They did not believe in the supernatural. They, they believed God existed, God created but he wasn't active. He didn't answer prayer. He didn't do miracles. There, there are no angels. There is no eternal soul. And there is no resurrection. And as we say, that's why they're sad, you see. So, but, but the Sadducees denied the miracles. Pharisees believed miracles could happen. 
Well, if you want to ask how did a miracle happen, you go to the Pharisees, but also those with the rabbis. So this is more of a synagogue issue. And so there was a gathering of these rabbis, and they asked them. They went to them for help. Help us understand what's going on. So there's, I know it's this, they aren't bringing him there. We want to put him on trial as, as a heretic or something. They're looking, how do we understand, how do you explain this thing? Well, verse 15, uh, oh no, verse 14, the John now throws in a detail that he didn't tell us before. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. You should know this because we've already seen the, their, their response when Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And so that's going to become an issue. Thank you, John, for telling us. Verse 15. Well, then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. And he told them. I noticed they asked him again. Um, this poor fellow is going to be reciting his story again and again. I imagine he said it several times to his friends that when he came back. Now they come to the, the Pharisees and they asked him again. I'm suspecting they had him tell it a few times. You know, police officers will often do that. They'll ask you, and what happened? Well, I just told you. Tell me again. And they have a couple of reasons for doing that. If you're lying, you know, that's one of the problems with lying. You don't even remember what you made up. And so, so, you're, if, and so they watch. If you retell the story with inconsistencies, um, you're lying. But another reason, um, sometimes you, you add some more details. You know, previously said, I was driving along. And uh, this guy and I had, and our cars collided. Okay, well, tell me what happened. I was driving along, our cars collided, and the phone flew out of my hand. The phone was in your hand. Okay, this is helpful information, you see. So they're, they're asking again, so tell us what happened. All he did, did he didn't, you know, did he, did he say some kind of incantation? Did he call on bail? I mean, how did he do this? So they, without leading him along, they just, tell us again what happened. And then he said to them, he put clay on my eyes, I washed, and I see. Uh, the, the story gets simpler. It doesn't change, but it's very simple. Notice, he, he hadn't called out, Jesus, heal me. Jesus didn't ask him like he has done before, would you like to be healed? He put clay on my eyes, I washed, and I see. By the way, can you... See why I used the songs we used for this morning? I once was blind, but now I see. Be thou my vision. Um, great songs for an optometrist uh, convention, but they really fit our passage as well. Verse 16, therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So now the, the Pharisees start back and forth. By the way, that is a, a, that is a long-term um, tradition among the Jews. You learn by asking questions and debating. And so if you ever see like pictures of students in a yeshiva, a lot of times there's two guys at a desk, and they're going back and forth, back and forth. That's how, how they kind of learn and study. And so, so there's this lively discussion Notice, though, this man, they say, um, cannot be from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. This man, 
notice carefully, and often you'll see this, you'll see this clearly in the Gospels. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders, they don't even like to speak his name. This one, this fellow, this man, they do not speak the name Jesus. And watch that. If ever you're around, especially an Orthodox rabbi or an Orthodox Jew, or, but especially a rabbi, when careful, often they will not speak the name Jesus either. They feel it would be a defiling thing to express the name of one who is so apostate. This man, they say, he cannot be from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. And one of the defining characteristics of an Orthodox or religious Jew is, is a keeper of the Sabbath. So he's not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. Others, other Pharisees, who were devout Sabbatarians who believed in the Sabbath and believed in the law, but they ask the question, how can, a man, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And so there's this division between them. There's, they, now there's, there's a growing conflict. Well, he can't be from God because he, he breaks the Sabbath. How can someone who's not from God do such miracles? And I think one of the things when they're saying that is um, the character in which he does it. He's not calling on the name of, of vile deities. He's not an immoral or wicked man. He is one who has taught wonderful sermons in the temple, challenging sermons, endorsed by John the Baptist, who many recognize as a prophet, and he does miracles. That doesn't fit with what, that he's not of God. But that question, how, how can a sinner do such signs? Remember, one of the Pharisees is a man named Nicodemus. Remember when he went in and met with Jesus and just the first two verses I'll read of John chapter 3. In John chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 we read, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher and come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless he, God is with him. You see? You see? So there saying the Pharisees here in this group are saying the same thing Nicodemus is saying. In fact, I have to wonder if Nicodemus isn't one of them. So he's in that group and he's one of the ones. And notice he's, the other ones are emphatic. He can't be from God. He broke the Sabbath. Nicodemus very discreetly asks a question. Well, how can someone do these kind of signs if it's not from God? So just kind of giving an alternative view here. And we're told there's a division. So here's a, here's a they're, they're, now they're arguing with each other. Reminds me when I took my uh, doctoral uh, final exam. Had uh, two hours of uh, being grilled. And um, one of the joys of the moment was an issue came up that all of a sudden the professors started disputing with each other. Well, we were on a clock. So every minute that they spent disputing with each other, I was off the hot seat. I didn't say much, but I just kind of quietly let them. And all of a sudden they said, oh, wait a minute, we're here to talk about you. The guns were post, post pointed back at me. But, but so here all of a sudden they're, they're arguing with each other. What about this? What about this? And, and I'm sure they said, well, you can't be from God. And they might say, look at what he's done. Powerful signs. Have we ever seen this before? No. Merciful signs. He, no, he's not doing it in the name of deities. He's a, he's a Jew. Who teaches in synagogues? Who's who's who's? And they talk about all those things. But he broke the Sabbath. He broke the Sabbath. 
But I should mention something. When I said he broke the Sabbath, Jesus didn't break the Sabbath. Jesus is a godly, holy, uh, faith and a faithful Jew. He does not break God's law. He thinks highly of it. He gave the law. So what's going on here? What's actually going on is, remember, these are Pharisees. They believe in miracles. They believe in angels, resurrection. They believe in the Bible, the, the whole Old Testament. The Sadducees, looks like, believe just the first five books. But they also believe that the rabbis' traditions are equal to the Bible. And so when they say he broke the Sabbath, they're thinking about all that they added into Sabbath laws. What they could have said is not he broke the Sabbath, he broke our Sabbath. But Jesus is keeping his Sabbath, the Sabbath of the Lord God, whom he is. And so here he's, uh, they're wrong. He didn't break the Sabbath. That, so, so they're right. Can, it, can, can he be a man of God and, and break God's law? No, because he's not breaking it. You're breaking it by adding to it. So after they've had their little argument, verse 17, they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? So they can't agree among themselves. He's a heretic. He's a sorcerer. Maybe labels like that. He's a man of God. Maybe he's the Messiah. Back and forth, back and forth. And so they said to him, "What, what do you think? Which is, again, very odd. The rabbis wouldn't do this. Because remember... This man was born blind. And that means in their thinking, there's one of two options. He's a, he's a son of sinful parents, and therefore he's being punished. they're being punished through his blindness. Or he himself sinned uh, before he was born. This man is a sinner. And they're asking him, what do you, th- what do you think about Jesus? And his answer, again, nice and straight to the point, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. So he recognizes a, a, a prophet. We often think of a, as a prophet as someone who predicts the future. A prophet was someone who spoke God's word, who spoke God's truth inerrantly. And, and so when he's saying he's a prophet, he, he's thinking of men like Elijah and Elisha and Moses who could do these powerful supernatural things in the name of the Lord God. He sees his healing as coming from God. Through a man of God. On behalf of God. And notice just again if you're carefully watching the text. When first he returned and his friends said who did this? A man named Jesus. Now what does he say? Now he says he's a prophet. And as we we won't even get all the way there. We're going to, but by the time we get to the end of the chapter, we're going to see his thinking continues to progress. But now he recognizes he's a man of God. He's a prophet. He speaks for God. Verse 18, Now the Jews did not believe him, believe concerning him, that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sights. So they step back and say, Wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's, let's prove there's truly a miracle. We don't even know this guy. Was he really blind? 
Was he really blind from birth? How do we know that? We don't know him. Do we take this sinner's word? And so um, they do a reasonable thing. They summon the parents to give testimony. So in some ways, they're following a, a decent procedure here. Let's get all the facts. And so the parents came, verse 19 to 21, and they asked him, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him, he will speak for himself. So they start with the basics. Is he your son? Yes. Was he born blind? Yes. Then they ask the tough question, how does he now see? And to that question, they give no answer. We don't know. We know he's our son. We know he's born blind. By what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Now, if I may say, that's, they probably know. He's probably told them. Mom, Dad, I can see. And they could look at his eyes and tell, he can see. And probably their mind flashed back to when that first that little baby was born and they said, can he see? And then as they developed and grew, I don't think he can see. No, he can't see. Can you imagine their jaws dropping as they looked into his face? He can see. Do you think they just left it at that? Don't you think the most natural question would be, what happened? Oh, I was listening to these great ads on the radio, and they said, if you take these vitamins, what happened? Don't you think he told what everyone else? A man named Jesus did this and this and healed me. But when they're standing before the trial, what are they saying? We don't know. Legally, that's a good answer. Because... Um, the information would be secondhand. They weren't there. I can't be a witness to that. I didn't see it. So we don't know. You have to ask him. We can't testify to those issues. And, but, and the way they said, he's of age, ask him. He'll speak for himself. They put it back on their son. And on his behalf, I say, thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. That's all you can do here? No support? No comment. And John tells us why in verses 22 and 23. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he's of age, ask him. We'll, give, we'll, we'll, we'll testify he's our son. We'll testify he was born blind. What happened from then, we, can't, we won't testify to that. Ask him. Notice, by the way, the prejudice that's already there. They've already decided they'll excommunicate anyone who says Jesus is the Messiah. The problem, no one's said anything about Messiah yet. But they know that's what they're dealing with. Who else could do this? Who else could do such a thing? And if you're here going to tell us you're, he's the Messiah, you know, just, just by verifying he did the miracle... They're going to say, okay, you're claiming his Messiah, you're out of here. You're, 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 you're excluded. And exclusion from the synagogue was not just, you can't come to the synagogue. What that means is, you're cut off from family. You're cut off 
from society. They're not going to do business with you. They're not going to talk with you. You, you are isolated. You'll lose your, you'll lose your income. You could lose your home. You're going to lose your family. You lose it all. And so the parents take the safe angle and say, uh, they put the ball in their son's court. Tech, check, check him. We're not, we're not going to identify with him. It's on him. Well, that's where our passage stops. Let's, I just want to mention a few things as we look at this. What happened? Why did they, first of all, just their amazement. And I have to believe they were, they were probably bursting with joy. They knew this guy. This is great. And frankly, pretty exciting to think that there's someone in Jerusalem who can make the blind see. So that was pretty exciting too. So why did they go to the Pharisees? Again, I, I think... They're just trying to understand what's going on. They went to the spirit. They went to the authorities. They went to the experts to get a, a, a an understanding of what was happening. The problem is, the experts have already decided to reject the truth. They've already decided. If someone says Jesus is the Messiah, we are excommunicating. They are, they are cut off from the synagogue. They're cut off from the religious community. No, that's not an impartial. Let's, let's examine the facts. If you suggest data that supports Jesus as Messiah, you are cut off. You, you are excluded. So these experts have an agenda. They're not really testing the facts. They're, they're only going to listen to the facts they want to listen to. In fact, it kind of reminds me of that old saying, don't confuse me with the facts. I remember I was so frustrated when I was in a sociology class, one of the first lectures we were getting, and the professor uh, announced that, this, that his approach he would take in class and, and that he was a Marxist and we would be learning sociology from a Marxist perspective and what that means is everything's economics and et cetera, et cetera. And so as he was giving this lecture and laying out all this data, this student a row or so over raised his hand and says, excuse me, professor, and held up his textbook. I've just come from my psychology class. And there are loads of footnotes and, and data in here that directly refute everything you just said. How do you answer that? And then the professor said, you choose the facts you want to deal with. Now, I was a science student. I was already resentful. I have to take a course in sociology. <laughs> and, and that just about, they call it social sciences. I said, I, I just about came out of my seat. My friend said, sit down, sit down. But that was so frustrating. But at least I loved that he was honest. I choose the data that supports my position. The rest of it I ignore. At least he said what everyone else was doing. You know, in the sciences, you try to, if you're really going to be acceptable, you have to explain all the data. It all has to be explainable in view of what you're saying. But so what they're saying is um, we'll only consider data that supports our position. And once you start suggesting something different, they grow hostile. Now we can stand here 2,000 years later and criticize them, but we have the same problem today. And so my warning to each of us is beware of the experts. Beware of the experts 
And, and ask the question, is the, for one question is, is the Bible your most trusted resource? Is the Bible your, your highest authority? Because as soon as you start putting something else above the Bible, you're already kind of setting yourself off. You're going to go in the wrong direction. For example, so much of, and I mentioned the sciences, a lot of people say, well, we cannot consider the fact that God exists because that wouldn't be scientific. We can't consider the fact of, of miracles. We can't uh, consider the fact of, of the supernatural because you can't prove it in a lab. But you see what they're already doing is they're denying the data that doesn't fit their presuppositions. And, isn't, and that's where we are today, is we are a pluralist society. We believe in freedom of speech, but speech that speaks of God is irrelevant in this society because that's not something that's factual in our opinion. That's like the professor saying, you choose the facts you want to deal with. And so, so that's a struggle we live, we live with. And, and I say that because we are prone to go to experts. Um, and one of my griefs is there are many, there's many a person standing behind a pulpit as I speak across this land. And their expertise, their, their explanation of spiritual truth is a direct opposition to the Bible. And yet, and it grieves my heart that many a person is going to church, maybe looking for wisdom, looking for help, looking for understanding, and these spiritual experts are, are guiding them away from the Lord, guiding them away from God's truth. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. And so what I'm calling us to is to be discerning. Are these people putting man's ideas over God's ideas? And that's what Jesus said the Pharisees did. That was his conflict with them. They agreed, eternal soul, angels, miracles. But they disagreed, do the traditions of the rabbi have equal authority? Because if it's equal, they're really over the Bible. They set aside the Bible for their traditions. So be discerning. Is the Bible the true authority? And are they, or are they ripping verses out of context if they use it? Or do they just flat out deny it? And again, in our secular, increasingly secular culture, that's a struggle because the experts out there that are, that are wanting to make the decisions for our families and our children are in direct opposition. They're not even just neutral. They're hostile to biblical values. But they're experts. They have lots of letters behind their name or in front of their name. And so these people went to those Pharisees, I think, fully well-intentioned. Let's go talk to the pastor. Let's get some spiritual insight. But the pastor, the shepherd they went to, started off with the assumption Jesus isn't the Messiah. Well, if that's where you start, you're on the wrong path. And you cannot end up at the... At the if that's the path you're on, you're going to get up in the wrong direction. So, so be discerning in how you... Seek and, and receive counsel. Notice this passage uh, shows us different ways to respond to Christ. The friends who welcomed him back, they had a casual interest in Jesus. Oh, really? He, he healed you? Let's go see him. Until their experts, you know, tell the Pharisees, tell the, their spiritual guides, tell them, oh, no, Jesus isn't the Messiah. Okay, well, they kind of lose interest. 
So some people will have an, a, a kind of a casual interest in the gospel, in Christ, in the Bible. But they don't really, really want to hear it. They don't really want to listen to it. They don't really want to believe and obey it. Some will suspect they understand the truth, but they're going to keep their heads down and their mouths shut, That's like his parents. Okay, so I'm a Christian, but uh, I'm going to keep a low profile. Um, one pastor was at the door and someone was leaving the church and he said, Hey, friend, haven't seen you in a long time. We need you in the Lord's army. He said, Oh, I'm in the Lord's army. I'm just in the secret service. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. We need to, you know, and so, so there are some though, and, and, and frankly, again, our culture is growing increasingly hostile. And it's going to be more and more difficult to, um, to speak up. Recently, the men uh, read the, a book by Erwin Lutzer, which I highly recommend. I think there's still copies available. We will not be silenced. And, and learning a lot from um, the era of, of Solzhenitsyn and, and, and just dealing with how do you deal with this uh, secularist, antichrist oppression one of the things is you start becoming fearful. You know, you don't speak your mind because this person you're talking to could be an informer. And so, beware of being silenced out of fear. That doesn't mean you have to stand on top of the roof and scream out things, but, but I think more and more we're going to have to be challenging ourselves to be faithful and willing to speak words seasoned with grace but but speak we will not be silenced good book to think about that now some people will know the power and truth of Christ and will simply humbly speak of him that's this man Christ just gave him vision Christ just healed him and by the end of this I'm convinced he's a believer and so with simplicity and humility, he speaks for Christ. Again, see the simplicity and humility. Sometimes we're criticized because we come across as arrogant. Sometimes that's just a you know, smokescreen. Oh, you're being arrogant. You believe you know the truth. Sometimes it's an accurate accusation. We can be unkind, boisterous, and arrogant. With simple humility, he identified himself with Christ. Come what may. And in fact, I'm rather encouraged. You know, I'm gonna, if you read through the rest of the chapter, and we'll talk about it more next week. Uh, we'll talk about it next time. Um, this man seems to grow in his understanding of Christ. Where's that coming from? The more he's being challenged, the more clear his thinking is becoming. And so there's an encouragement to us. When time, hard times come, that might actually be forcing us to be clearer and stronger in our in our claim to Christ. Again, I'm teaching church history right now in this uh, Zoom class in Nepal. And uh, one of the things we see in that is, we, as we studied the early centuries, there were lots of conflicts. Who, how do we understand this trinity? Is Jesus God or isn't he? And there were battles over that. And how do we understand the nature of Christ? How can he be truly God and truly man? And there were battles over that. I, I'm Sorry for the battles, but you know there was a benefit. 
those challenges and those questions force people to get together, open their Bibles and say, what does the Bible say? And they became clearer and clearer and more and more accurate in how they described the Trinity and who Jesus is. And so my thought is, as we are increasingly challenged in the culture, you know, we can't just be like a leaf going along with the stream anymore. We've got to stand. And to stand, we need to know what we believe and why we believe and be able to clearly and accurately, humbly and, and simply express our faith in Christ. And so this man is growing in his ability to, to identify with Christ because of the opposition. And so uh, that's one of the things that the comfortable Christianity of, of a previous generation is quickly going away. Increasingly, we're going to be in, uh, recognize what's always been true. We're on a battlefield. And, and we've got to know how to stand in this battle for Christ. Reminds me of one of the men we talked about in our, Bible, in our time. You've probably heard of him. Well, you've heard the expression, a man named Athanasius. There was a heretic named Arius. Who, and, and he was very strongly denying the deity of Christ. Wrote, he, he, and he was, he was convincing people, and he wrote songs that, that taught his heresy. And so you could go to the major harbors throughout the Roman Empire, and you'd hear the sailors singing these songs uh, teaching heresy. It was, it was becoming a, a, like a terrible infection spreading through the church. And one of the men who sto stood boldly against it was a man named Athanasius. And he was almost single-handedly at times stood for the truth and fought for the truth and fought against compromise to, to argue that Jesus Christ is God. God the Son, there is, and so he's arguing for the concept of the, of the Trinity, that Jesus is God. So, so the, the Arians were teaching what Jehovah's Witnesses say. Oh, Jesus is a you know, wonderful creation of God, but he's a creation. He's not God. Athanasius battled. Five different times he was exiled from the, the empire because he would not compromise. At one time his friends came to him and said, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. And his response was, well, then Athanasius is against the world. And that, that came that Latin expression, contramundum, against the world. He said, if, 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 if the world is against me, that means the world's wrong. Because I'm standing on God's truth, and I'm not going to back down from God's truth, no matter what the world around me says. We need a generation of Athanasian boldness. We need to be bold and strong and know what we believe and hold to it. One last thing I'd say. What these people could not argue with was this man's personal testimony. They could argue all they want. Well, you know, no, he didn't, you know, you can't see. Actually, I can. <laughs> uh, Jesus didn't have anything to do with it. Actually, he did. I was there. I was reading an account from D.L. Moody, and he was over in England and doing evangelism. It was a big, uh, it was controversial. He was preaching to the universities, and they were saying, this guy's uneducated. He used to be a shoe salesman. And, and scores and scores of university students were trusting Christ because of the clarity of the gospel he preached. Well, there was this one family, and they were reading all the accounts of this Moody fellow, and they were scoffing at, you know, who is this American guy? And, and this is, you know, they were going on and on. And it was, I think, uh, two daughters and a son and the family. And anyway, one of the daughters was passing by the, one evening where one of the meetings was being held. And she thought, 
I think I'll go check out what this guy is all about. And there weren't many seats. She sat down in this one spot next to an older lady, and the older lady engaged her in conversation and said, so what do you think? Are you a follower of Christ also? Oh, no, no, no. I think this is all nonsense. They talked back and forth, and she said, well, I can see you come with a lot of prejudice. And then she, and, and, and she said, but I'll encourage you to come and listen anyway. She came and she thought, oh, I had some interesting things. She came back the next night, next night, next night. Next thing you know, she trusted Christ as Savior. The clarity of the message broke her heart. Her sister couldn't believe it, mocked her, bullied her, harassed and harangued her. And said, how can you believe this is true? And she said, finally, she said, look, you've known me all my life. Sisters can say that sort of thing. What would my usual reaction be to this kind of har harassment and antagonism you've been throwing at me? Would it be what you're seeing now? I said, no. You're different. Christ did that. So the sister started going to the meetings, and she trusted Christ. Long story short, it spread through the whole family. But what was the, the, a, a, a powerful tool in her armory? Her own testimony of trusting in Christ as Savior. Let me tell you how Christ has changed my life. You know, people love stories. And they, you know, you, you know, they're going to argue and argue maybe about the Bible and this issue and that issue, but they can't quite argue with your own testimony. In terms of reaching out to people, often it's been suggested that you, you, have, you, you, you have kind of in your own mind think through. If someone asks me, what, how do I know Christ? That you should be able to express it in a matter of a couple of minutes how you came to know Christ. And then... It's, they say, you know, in, in sales, they, you should have an elevator speech. An elevator speech is if you're taking an elevator and going up a few floors, you've got 30 seconds. Can you summarize your message? And of course, if you're a salesman, you bump into someone in the elevator, so what do you do? I sell insurance. I've got 30 seconds in a captive audience. You better get to the point because he's going to get off in the, the next open door. So in the same way, just to be, so think through your mind. If someone were to ask me, what does it mean to know Christ? I read about a fellow that was on an airline that they announced, it's going down. He was a believer. He unbuckled his seatbelt, stood up and said, folks, it is not looking good. May I please share with you how I know that I'm going to be in heaven. And he shared his faith in Christ. That's not the time to get online and try and find gospel presentation. <laughs> we need to be ready to share our faith in a personal, lively, humble, and simple way. Our Father, thank you for the boldness of this dear brother. We look forward to meeting him in heaven. Father, thank you for how you do change hearts. And Father, as we see this brother facing abandonment by those closest to him, hostility, from those who are the leaders in culture. Lord, I pray that we might follow him in a courageous, humble obedience to Christ. Father, if any here have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, may you open their eyes as you did this man, that they might see the fullness of salvation in Jesus Christ. I pray this in his blessed name.